This is The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from Queens College. I'm Leslie Hankson from Georgetown University. And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter, at Socianex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Today, we're taking a bird's eye view of the discipline with Donnell Butler, a Pahara Aspen Education Fellow and the Senior Associate Dean for Planning and Analysis of Student Outcomes at Franklin and Marshall College. We're going to talk about higher ed, views of the discipline from above, life on the executive track, and much more. You're not going to want to miss this. Welcome, Danelle. Hey, what's going on? Hi, Danelle. Hello, Leslie. Hey, Gabriel. <laughs> Uh, who wants to kick it off? All right. So, uh, well, first of all, just a very brief item, um, you know, in response to our banter a couple weeks ago about that nursing textbook, Jay Livingston um, sent us uh, an email with a PDF of an old article from the 50s talking about different ethnic groups reaction to pain. So I guess, uh, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And we'll put up a link to his art. Well, not his article. He didn't write it. He's not that old. Uh, but the article he sent us, we'll put it up on the Web page. It's from the 1950s. Yes. Um, but I think a sociologist by the name of Zaborowski. That guy sounds like somebody who needs his pain affirmed by others. <laughs> <laughs> How do you spell that again? Way to stereotype. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I know that, that'll probably be an edit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, the item I want to talk about is... Um, the tax reform bill has the broad goal of eliminating deductions and lowering rates, which in general, most economists will tell you is good policy. It's less distortionary. Mm -hmm. But of course, the devil's in the details. It seems like it's not going to be quite as broad as 1986, where they really did eliminate most deductions and lower the rates broadly. It seems it's more targeted. And um, if you also get the impression that if you were to ask Paul Ryan what is best in life, his answer would not be the wind in your hair, the falcon at your wrist, and the open step, it would be crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentations of their grad students. Um, because, uh, you know, a lot of the eliminated deductions are uh, laser focused at uh, blue state, double income, no kid liberals. Where, um, you know, so you have the state and local tax deduction, you have the mortgage interest deduction, both of which are kind of uh, aimed a bunch of which wildly disproportionately benefit uh, blue state Henrys, right? Uh, the kind of people we talked about before is dream hoarders. Uh, these yeah. kind of like people who are at the 90th to 95th percentile and live almost entirely in blue states, especially in big cities. Mm -hmm. Those are the people with really big mortgages. Those are the people who have who actually take advantage of the state and local tax deduction. And then among the more minor and petty ways that um, this uh, tax bill would uh, – you know, really stick it to constituencies who aren't exactly favorable to Ryan. Uh, and this one, I think, is actually less defensible as policy. I can see it both ways. Um, but I think this is less defensible as policy than limiting the state and local deduction or the mortgage interest deduction. Um, I, f I favor, for instance, capping the mortgage interest deduction at half a million. I, I think that's good policy. But this oh, it shouldn't even exist. It's a ridiculous law. Okay, so you're more radical than I am, but I, <laughs> but you can't eliminate it overnight. Anyway, but what we're really talking about is the proposal to count tuition waivers for graduate students as income for taxable purposes. Mm -hmm. Basically, all you need to know is that at a lot of schools, at most schools, the tuition waiver is between half and one quarter. I'm sorry, between half and three quarters of the total package. Sorry, Gabe, when you say most schools, you mean most schools who are funding. Like, are, are, most, are most graduate students funded? I think in the top 10, top 20 programs, basically all grad students are funded. And you were okay. talking about P mostly P vast majority PhD programs, not terminal masters, right? Yeah, terminal masters, nobody's funded. <laughs> and applied fields, nobody's funded. So you're getting an MBA, you're getting an MPA. You're getting a, a JD, you're getting an MBA, you're getting a medical degree. None of that's funded. Mm -hmm. I, I would leave it as an open question as to whether the majority of doctoral students, though, are getting funding at all. Well, that's fair. But I, I think in the, in the top programs, uh, well, let me put it this way. I think you'd be crazy to go to graduate school without funding because it's kind of an iffy proposition, even if you do Absolutely. have funding. But, you know, in the top 10, top 20 programs, the vast majority of students are funded. 
Um, mm-hmm. And at those programs, the tuition waiver is approximately half to three quarters of the total value of their package. So if you're making 20 grand on your stipend and um, tuition is another 20 grand for in-state tuition at a state school, then that's right. about half your package which effectively means that it's going to double your taxes, actually more than that because of the way the deductions and brackets and things like that work. Right. So like basically if you, if your tuition is 20 grand and your PhD program waives the 20 grand, then the government is going to count that the same as it would a check of 20 grand going to you. Yes. So if you're making 20 grand in stipend and you have a tuition waiver for 20 grand of tuition, you're only t- making 20 grand, but the government's going to tax you on 40. Right. And if you're going to a private school where the tuition is close to 40 and your stipend is 20, maybe a little bit higher, they're going to tax you on 60 grand, even though you're right. only making 20. So what are people in the office saying about this? Because you're, you're at a, you're at a top ranked doctoral program. Well, we haven't discussed it yet, but you know, um, you know, I don't talk to people in the office as much as I do on Twitter, which is, you know, why Leslie's so out of it. Uh, but, but, you know, obviously people don't like it, right? But I want to kind of separate the extent to which, well, in what way should we consider it income? And also yeah. consider like kind of the counterfactual of like, what else could we do? Because I don't think realistically, so there's a few things, there's a few ways that universities could respond to this aside from saying, don't do this. Like, let's say mm-hmm. that it passes tomorrow. Um, there's a few ways that universities could respond to this and figuring out how the universities would respond to it is actually kind of interesting. Um, so the simplest thing to do would just be to raise, um, grad student stipends enough to, uh, pay their tax bill. Uh, so you'd have to raise it by the amount that their taxes are going up and then also raise it enough to pay the taxes on the taxes. Cause right. you know, if I pay your taxes, that counts as income for you. So I have to pay even more than that. Yeah. Why even charge grad students tuition? Well, that would be the alternative, right? The alternative would be, and, well, first, first let's deal with this, right? It's like, well, that's a lot of money Yeah. that they'd have to raise, um, and, uh, you know, and a lot of grad programs are already strapped. And I think that if you were to do that, it would have the effect of shifting um, graduate programs over to adjuncts and postdocs, where, mm-hmm. you know, if you think about in terms of these are people who aren't just like, oh, we're providing the next generation of PhDs, but, you know, we're getting work done, um, which is part of the function of grad students. Um, you, you could see people saying like, well, why would we hire a grad student rather than just hiring up an adjunct for teaching or hiring a postdoc for um, research? Because, you know, the bottom end of the postdocs is something like 40 grand, but you don't have to pay them tuition. And so that's effectively about the same rate as what you're paying a grad student already when you include the tuition waiver. And so, um, the, you know, if you had to raise the rates, raise the pay of, um, grad students, but not raise the rate of postdocs because they don't currently have tuition, that would make it more attractive to hire postdocs for research. And then similarly, make it more attractive to hire adjuncts for um, teaching. Well, I don't know. Oh, sorry. I kind of feel like it's, you know, it's kind of like asking, why do people have kids, right? They cost mm-hmm. money. They take mm-hmm. up your time, yeah. right? It's because you're going to take care of me in my old age. And I kind, of, I, I kind of feel like that's one of the reasons why you have grad programs, right? You are thinking to yourself, we want to reproduce stuff. And you can't have postdocs unless they were once grad students, right? But then it's I mean, a collective action problem. So if yes. it costs me a fortune to have a, um, a grad student, but it costs me very little to have a postdoc and I can have roughly the same intellectual influence over a postdoc as I could over a grad student. Um, and in particular, I could ha- have this person help me by co-authoring. Then mm-hmm. I, I would, it might benefit the discipline as a whole to have grad students, mm-hmm. but it would benefit me to have a postdoc, right? So if I'm going to write my next grant and I have to budget an additional $4,000 for higher tuition, higher money uh, for because they're going to be taxed on the tuition. And then I have to budget for the indirects on top of that $4,000. Now that grad student is going to cost me an additional $6,000 a year. And by that point, I'm much better off just putting a postdoc in my grant. It would be better for sociology as a whole if I had a PhD student. But if you reduce the number of graduate students, then that means the cost of a postdoc is going to go up. 
because you're going to have limited supply. Oh, there's there's gonna, there's never limited supply. There's so many out of work PhDs. I mean, maybe in years. Yeah. But- so yeah. So first of all, that's very long run equilibrium thinking, and how long would it take to reach that? And second of all, um, we already have a glut of PhDs. So there's a, so there's a couple of things there. One, we already have a glut of PhDs. Unfortunately, the glut is probably largely comprised of people who are paying tuition, but also this tuition stuff, it's kind of like Macy's pricing Mm -hmm. where like you take a $50 jacket, you uh, charge $150 for it and then give people a $100 discount. Yeah. You know, a a PhD student is not like an undergraduate student. They're part worker. Yeah. You know, they're, they're part faculty and they're part student. And it's odd that they would charge as much, especially since, they are doing work and they are important to the production of output of the institution. Um, but, you know, so so one so glass half full would be to say this could, in you know, without anybody really intending it this way, it's not like they're sitting down thinking like, oh, there's this problem with the PhD glut. Let's solve it. Um, it could end up solving the PhD glut or at least ameliorating it. Right. Maybe we already have too many grad students who then can't get jobs. And so. If we um, have fewer of them, it would be better uh, in the long run, even for the people who get rejected and then go do something more productive with their lives. Um, and then the the other way, okay, so, but let's put aside this option of just, you pay the students more so that they can pay their, so they can afford to pay their now exorbitant tax bills with the second order effect that you end up hiring more postdocs and adjuncts. The other option would be just like you said, it's kind of funny money. It's like, it's just like you said, like the example I would think of is, um, you know, Banana Republic, because it's like, in theory, a shirt at Banana Republic is, you know, $100 or $80 or whatever, but I've never paid that because I every day I get an email saying 40% off. Um, you know, so, it, you know, in reality, nobody ever pays that, or at least very few people do. And, you know, in so why do they have tuition for grad students? And so, and kind of the, the, solution you could imagine would be that they just eliminate the tuition and just have it be that if you get in, tuition is free. And I think there's a few reasons they don't do that. Um, uh, one is because it's convenient to the university to have a nominal grad student tuition rate because they actually do charge that to law students and MBAs and people like that. And that actually is the business model of a law school or a business school is to charge tuition. And it would basically be a pain to, ex- uh, to explain to people if you had uh, free to, you know, nominally zero tuition, you know, in, in reality, it's zero tuition for grad students. But if you were to make it nominally uh, zero tuition for um, PhD students, but you're still charging $40,000 a year to law students. Um, but even assuming that away, there is the fact that sometimes you can, you as a university can get somebody else to pay for it. So if your faculty have grants, you you make them cover the tuition in the grants, which you know isn't really that common in sociology. It's not unheard of, but that's like par for the course in any of the hard sciences. In the hard doesn't s- it still incur a tax bill though? On the they're still receiving a tuition waiver of a different sort, right? Like a grant is covering them, or they they wouldn't charge the university. Are you saying? No, what I'm saying is that if you get hired, so the way that most of the hard sciences work is that the grad students get admitted as some part of somebody's lab. That lab is funded mm-hmm. by grants. The grants include tuition support. You know, so like if I if if I was a chemist, I might write a grant for five million dollars, and in that grant, I might have say that I'm going to support ten grad students, and I would budget for those ten grand grad students twenty five or thirty thousand dollars in stipend plus twenty five thousand dollars a year in um, uh, tuition waiver plus the indirects on top of that. And so the, the university is getting the tuition. It's just not getting it from the student. It's getting it from the National Science Foundation or the Department of Defense or something. And then there are the few students who do come in with their own grants, right? That's right. And and that money then just gets funneled like towards their tuition, right? That's right. So like uh, you don't really have a lot of these like lab style grants, but we know plenty of people who had like Ford fellowships and mm-hmm. uh, Princeton got money from the Ford Fellowship. It actually paid the tuition uh, instead of it being this, you know, I'll pay myself a dollar kind of deal. Okay, anyway, so it's like, 
universities like charging grad students tuition, even if it's fairly nominal, because very often they can actually bill that money to somebody else. And if they were to switch to this, they, you know, I I feel like universities are going to be facing this dilemma of, do they have to raise a bunch more money to raise the stipend so that students can afford to pay their taxes? Or did they, um, or do they uh, decide to forego all this grant money? Um, the, the main thing I think about all this is that in the end, I'm wondering if we're worrying about something that may not occur. Um, I say that because thinking more in terms of the tax policy side of it, they basically have to keep the debt from going over $1.5 trillion over X number of years. And I suspect that the first version of this is something that they did in order to um, not make it easier for people who are big supporters of colleges and universities and people who went to colleges and universities. Because I mean, when you look through all of the sort of aspects of the tax bill, it's almost like if you're involved at all with colleges and universities, you want no part of this. Um, there's the excise tax on large college endowments. There's the student loan interest rate deduction being eliminated. There's the repeal of the lifetime learning credit. If you're an employee, right? So let's say, you know, you know, Gabriel one day, you know, Leslie one day, Joe one day, your kids are going to go to college, right? But what, so- what of mine is in college. Okay, so there you go. So if they're at a comp, so if they're, let's say they're at your institution or they're doing um, tuition exchange, right? One of the provisions, um, it basically will say, well, previously you were able to not have it considered taxable income if you got a tuition reduction, right? Now, a lot of people didn't know that. So it's amazing how many people didn't realize that like, oh, that's, that, that's a tax benefit. But it's a tax benefit when you're a professor. And your kids go to college, um, particularly if you're in part of some kind of tuition exchange or tuition reduction plan, especially if they go to the same college that you're at. So you get this tuition discount. All that goes away under this current version of the bill. And so it's almost as if they've done everything in their power to basically say, hey, if you are highly educated, we're coming at you. And I don't know if that's. I don't know what the story is behind that. Like, I feel like there's got to be a story behind that. There's lots of choices you could make, but it's like they picked off all of these lists of things that would be disconcerting to folks who are in colleges and universities. And I have a feeling in the long run, from a lobbying standpoint, colleges, once they start to get their head around this and begin to realize all of these things together, they're going to focus, whether it be through associations or through their donors, to sort of push back on these things. And it's hard to say what's going to actually come of it. This is such an American problem. Like <laughs> you take you take a public service that's like treated like K-12 education everywhere else on earth. You create this really complicated scheme where there's all these zany list prices and crazy discounts and tax loopholes and loan subsidies and you get this really awful complex like byzantine system where this would none of this would be a problem if you just socialize education like they do over most of the highly developed world yeah agreed i'm wondering the extent to which if this does get passed in its entirety What's going to, I mean, there are already huge disincentives to becoming an academic, right? Um, and going to grad school to get a PhD. Um, I, I think it's going to really disincentivize it for, um, for like people who grow up in low income, working class, and even just like moderately middle class households, right? Because what's the upside? Assuming that people of modest means are the ones who are going to these top PhD programs, because I don't know about that. But people of modest means wouldn't even consider it if it wasn't for the tuition discount. Exactly. Right. So I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have done it. I want to talk about the University of Wisconsin Superior closing down their social program. Did you guys hear about this? No, I did. (laughs) 
So the main headline is straight up poof. That's it. No more sociology degrees at Wisconsin Superior. Uh, I wrote to the department chair, uh, Eric Edwards. He, seemed, he was nice enough to write back to me. And so he told me that the rationale that was given was an, a desire to improve student experiences by streamlining their choices. So it doesn't make s- sense to me. Sounds like an excuse. Um, they said they were cutting programs with low enrollments, but uh, Eric said Soch was above, they were graduating sort of double the minimum. Mm. And uh, he said enrollment was down in Soch after 2008, which is a widespread problem in our discipline. And the school wasn't replacing retirees. So there was kind of like uh, a professor would retire and the school wouldn't come up with another Soch line. And so he, 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 I, I got from him that there was sort of this spiral of uh, cutbacks uh, and, and low enrollment. Now, I, I, I wanted to ask you guys, do you think this is an idiosyncratic thing? I mean, I don't know much about Wisconsin Superior. Do you think that there is sort of a canary in the coal mine situation going on here? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I mean, our enrollment has been robust. I mean, we, we are actually seeing minor, like majors and minors, you know, hovering around the same the same level, I think, mm-hmm. over the past, you know, six, seven, eight years. So, and and we're pretty large considering the size of our department. Well, the the good news is is that Leslie's at a great institution, and the challenge is that's not happening nationwide because nationwide colleges are struggling to meet their expected enrollment for classes. And part of that's driven by a demographic shift, right? We've essentially have a dip in the birth rate, right? So what that means is when you've got fewer, you know, 18 to 22 year olds from, you know, high school going into college, ergo, there's going to be fewer kids in college. And this is going to be the case, I think, until I don't want I don't I have to look this up to get it right, but at least until about 2030, it might be the case all the way until 2040. That's the word in admin circles that like the industry is going to be affected by a baby bust. Right. So what essentially is colleges and universities are now beginning to have to sort of identify where they're going to address that drop in enrollment, along with the reality that they can't continue on the path of raising tuition and fees you know, 4% a year anymore, 3 to 4% a year, because, you know, people are becoming a lot more cost conscious about sending their kids to colleges. So what's occurred is more and more colleges are having this conversation regarding, okay, let's think about, do we need as many academic departments as we have? Do we need as many administrative departments as we have? Do we need, where can we cut? Okay. And, it's the first step, right? It's that's the canary in the coal mine. It's the first step towards do we need to close our institution? You know, like Sweetbriar, though they came back from 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 the beyond. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's also part of you know that larger discussion that I think we've been hashing out for the past ten years, ten twenty years or so about what the value of a liberal arts education, right? And so. People, you know, and and I think that a lot of students are coming into undergrad with their parents saying you need to major in something where you can get a job right away. And I think sociology might have a branding problem. Right. I mean, why? Like, what do you what job are you going to get with a social degree? Well, I think that's totally what's happening. We're we did experience a post 2008 hit. And some of it had to do with the, uh, I think, uh, perceived declines in the attractiveness of becoming a teacher because mm-hmm. uh, we fed a lot of teaching students. It used to be when I first came here, our best students went on to teacher's college. And now students don't want to do that. But it's also just as, as, from an, as someone from an institution who teaches people that aren't wealthy – they, w- they need to make money. It's not even a question of wanting to make money. They want a job on the other end of this degree because they got to pay it off. And in a lot of circumstances, they got families to support. And the fact is, is that sociology is not perceived as an avenue to a career by a lot of people. We regularly show up in those listings of low return on investment degrees 
we appear there. And uh, I think that we do have an image problem. And I, I would bet that I, I don't doubt that, Donnell, that there's a, a demographic, sort of an overarching demographic factor that's influencing the industry as a whole. But my view on the ground is that there's, there is an image problem. Like the, the business, business schools aren't hurting, you know. Uh, there, there are lots of uh, degrees that are perceived as a route to uh, a good education. Or a good, sorry, good paycheck. No, agreed, not- agreed wholeheartedly. But but let's compare ourselves then to other academic disciplines because what I don't know is I don't know what's occurring in other departments at UW Superior, right? So do they have a classics department? No, I have no idea. I do know do- that poli sci was folded in to, and uh, like it was a social science hit and sociology was in the chopping block. I bet you econ stayed alive though. Right. Econ probably stayed alive, but like classics may have gotten, you know, mixed into some generic humanities degree that they may have created. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't want to assume, but if you go around the country, you'll see that there are a number of colleges and universities that have these sort of joint sociology and anthropology departments because they mm-hmm. never got to the size in which they felt like the departments could stand alone. And you could imagine sociology and anthropology and poli sci being merged into a social science department in the same way that you could imagine you might have once had a French department and an Italian department. And now because of changes in the kinds of things that students want to learn languages about, more students are coming in wanting to learn Arabic there's a revitalization of wanting to learn Russian, that these departments may have shrunk significantly in the number of majors they have. And so now they're part of the foreign language department and they're no longer on their own. And so I think what's happening to sociology is going to happen to other disciplines. And I think it's going to vary by institution. If you've got a really strong social department, you'll probably be able to survive the sort of changes in the market desires, what, what students think they want to learn in order to be successful, what students want to get a degree in. But if you maybe don't have the strongest social department and you've only got two or three majors a year, you may end up on the cutting block. Hmm. So is there anything we can do? Like as an administrator, what could the discipline do to stave off sort of the, uh, the scalpel? Well, I mean, so – as from an administrative standpoint, I, I am spending a lot of time thinking about what it takes to attract students to academic disciplines because I'm at a liberal arts college. And for me, it's important that all of our academic disciplines survive. Right. So how do you sell a major that is never been thought about to a first generation or low income student? Right. Sociology is kind of an easy sell. Once you explain what sociology is, it's easy for students to tie that to their own lives, to be able to think of, wow, I can use these theoretical and methodological tools to basically identify the challenges that I've faced in my life and maybe help change them. Great, right? It's a harder sell for me to sort of just naturally explain classics. Right. How do I explain classics or art and archaeology? Or dance. Right. You know, and so then it becomes a little bit more of a challenge. Right. But it can be done. And there are ways to do that. And it's about basically working with the professors on the ground to say, listen, in the long run, it's about your students. So how do you get students excited about this discipline? How do you get students excited and applying what they're learning to their own lives, to their own communities? Tell me how you do that well, and let's workshop that. And if you can basically do that in extraordinarily successful ways, how about you come on the road with us when we're visiting schools? Or how about when we bring prospective students to campus, or we bring first years to campus for orientation, you lead a session explaining the values of geology and how geoscience is associated with earth and environment, or the, the, the use of understand, using certain tools to understand the formation of life 
in rocks and materials in space for people who might want to be astronauts one day. Like, let's find a way for you to make this exciting for these students coming in. Because when we think about the sort of what we call the new majority of students in higher ed, more adult learners, more first gen students, more students from economic backgrounds that can't afford 40, 50, 60, $70,000 cost of attendance, we've got to find a way to make it exciting and attractive to them. I mean, I think the way that, that we spin it is it's, you know, we don't think of it as job training per se. We think about it as, you know, we're helping you to hone these these very specific skills that actually will help you across many, many different career paths. And if you can figure out how to how to spin that in your cover letter, you'll be good. You think that you think that would work? I mean, I could see that working at a well-heeled institution that serves kids who can who plan on going on to grad school anyways or but do you think that would work with the with the general public? I think so. I mean, we I mean, whatever. We have kid, we have students who go off to do many, many, many different things, right? Um, some of them are first generation. Uh, some of them come from extremely wealthy families. I think part of it is maybe sort of they have, you know, the stamp of the name of this institution, right, um, on on their resume. But I, I, I actually, I think, I actually think anybody could sell it. I think anybody could sell it, and a lot of, and a lot of it has to do with the, the how well they are actually trained in those skills by that institution that they're claiming uh, they has helped them to actually garner and hone those skills. That's what I think. I totally agree with Leslie. I mean, there's a there's a quote that I keep on my sort of my computer board. And so I can read it to you really quick. It's a quote from Linda Darling Hammond. And what she said was the top 10 in demand jobs projected for 2010 did not exist in 2004. Mm -hmm. Thus, the new mission of schools is to prepare students to work at jobs that do not yet exist, creating ideas and solutions for products and problems that have not yet been identified using technologies that have not yet been invented. I keep that quote on my computer board because Whenever I'm working on a project, I have to always remind myself that it's never about a specific tool or a specific skill. It's about how do I help our college and how do I help other colleges and how do I help schools that I work with get better at helping students learn how to learn? Because learning is a lifelong process and being a lifelong learner and being creative and being able to take different theoretical frameworks and different strategies and approaches to understanding knowledge, different methodological tools. These are all ways that you need to develop in order to be successful in life, in order to lead a healthy career, in order to raise a family. These are all valuable tools. It's not just about getting a job. Getting a job is important. Don't get me wrong about that. But what's most important is that process of learning how to learn because you can we can train you in a particular skill in college. Mm. But what if that skill gets automated away five years from now? It's going to happen. Right. <laughs> so odds are it's going to happen. Right. So so what are you going to do? Right. We, you want to be in a position where you can retrain yourself, where if this thing goes out of style, you're ready to learn a new thing. Where you're not sitting around, you know, in your parents' basement going, oh, my gosh, I learned cobalt. And now that cobalt has been replaced, I can't do anything. No. Get off your butt and learn Python, right? Like, you learn cobalt, you can learn Python. This discussion of the impending obsolescence of sociology is making me actually reflective about why I became a sociologist in the first place. Why did you guys, yeah, why did you guys become sociologists? I'm curious. You want to start, Donnell, or shall I? Um, sure. Uh, so <laughs> I became a sociologist by accident. Mm. Uh, I was going to be in business. I, everybody knew it. I applied to all colleges, undergraduate institutions that have really good business programs. 
um, because I was obsessed with, I grew up poor and, um, or, or, or as I like to say, working class, right? So um, I, my plan was never to go hungry again, right? I was going to pull myself out of poverty and be done with that. And so I thought business is the way to do that. And so I came into college knowing I was going to be a business major, which is kind of unusual when one goes to a liberal arts college like I did, but I was like, I'm going to be a business major. I took a social course. I just took a social course because it was one of the general ed requirements. I had to take a, you know, a course in, let's call it the social sciences, whatever the general ed requirement was. And I, it wasn't even, it wasn't even, it was, it didn't even take two classes. I mean, I literally remember the first class thinking to myself, oh, this is neat. And the first book I read was um, Suicide by Emile Durkheim. And I remember like wrestling with the language. But once I got it, I was like, oh, my gosh. Like now I understand why so many things that went down in my community when people felt a sense of normlessness, why people did what they did. It all made perfect sense to me. And at that point, I thought, this, this is going to be fun. Like business for me was all about the work. How, what do I have to learn in order to get a good job after I graduate? But sociology, it was about the fun. Like this is the kind of stuff that I can learn and have conversations with any human being about, with other faculty who weren't even in social with my family, because I can I can sort of switch up. I can use a little code switching and switch up the language and and tell a story, you know, using sociological theory. But I could like overlay it with, you know, how Slick Rick had that track children's story. Okay, so check it from this advantage, right? And I could do that in such a way that social was like this like tool that I could take with me in any conversation in any avenue. It was fun. It was like my like it was like my hammer and that it was like my toolkit that I could use anywhere. And I just fell in love with it. Now, of course, and you guys know this, but but I guess the podcast listening audience doesn't. I went into business. You know, I worked for three years at a public accounting firm, a really successful one. And I was really great there. But I didn't love what I was doing. I was good at it, but I wasn't enjoying myself. I found myself missing sociology a lot, um, so much so that I ended up getting because I was making a lot of money in public accounting. So I ended up getting a journal subscription to ASR and AJS just for the fun of it. That's how much of a nerd wow. I was. <laughs> That's and at that, like after doing that for a year, I reached out to my old social professors and I said, you know, I know this sounds crazy, but I think I want to go and get my PhD in sociology. What do you think? And they were all like, yeah, we knew this day was coming. We've already written your letters. Like we, <laughs> we, we already knew that this day was going to come. So your letters were written right after you graduated. They're just, just waiting for you. And that was, that's how I became a sociologist. So Joe, so Joe, what's your uh, come to Jesus, I mean, come to sociology moment? Yeah. I mean, my story might not be as interesting. There is an interesting component. So I, I, as an undergrad, I was in an international business program at a Canadian university, Carleton University. And part of it had a mandatory one-year exchange. And uh, the class was very, very neoliberal, right? And I was a, a, a true believer. And I went to the University of Buenos Aires uh, economics faculty for a year. And what was really interesting about the University of Buenos Aires economics faculty was there were two generations. There was those who uh, were had, had gotten their position before the dictatorship and they went into exile. And they were mostly old social psychologists and org theorists and things like that. And then there was a younger generation who had been Harvard Business School trained. And their, what they were teaching was very close to what I had already been taught. And I just, I, uh, I really liked the old guys. I thought they were thoughtful and philosophical and scientific. And uh, I was just really, I really enjoyed talking to them. And I really enjoyed talking to them in a context where I was in uh, Buenos Aires in uh, 1998. 
And it was a year after uh, a big uh, financial crisis that sort of put the brakes on the neoliberal prosperity that the country had been enjoying for the, uh, you know, during the mid nineties. And so it was sort of the, the experience of meeting all these social psychologists and seeing sort of the failure of the real world failure of a theoretical system that I had learned about and had been taught was going to create this amazing bounty, watching its failure on the ground sort of pushed me away from uh, economics and, uh, and, and towards uh, this discipline. Huh. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, mine, uh, I think um, I became a sociologist because of the bell curve, actually. No. Um, yeah, I've read that book. Um, I read that book uh, soon, like not that long after it came out, just because I saw all these people reading it. And I wondered what's so great about this book that everyone seems to be reading it. And I remember reading it. And I remember thinking to myself, people still think this stuff. <laughs> and, and it's great. Well, apparently they do, because you have these two guys from Harvard, who not only wrote the book, but they got it published and millions of people are buying it mm -hmm. and everyone's talking about it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was a political economy major in undergrad and I just, I, I was like, I didn't, ha I was like, where's the language for me to even start to rip apart this argument, right? Mm -hmm. um, because I mean, whatever, I can look at your models and I can tell you what I think is wrong with your models, right? But where's the language for why, why you would try to spin your findings the way that you did and, and, and why your, your interpretation of your findings seemed to have such traction um, in the, in the U S like in like the, like the mid to late nineties, right. Mm -hmm. What's going on here. Um, and so, yeah. Um, I, I think that was that was it. I mean, that was it. I mean, I didn't I didn't go into sociology right away. I mean, I had a corporate job. I did teach for America, I, uh, and I was going to get a PhD in policy. And then, but thinking, I was just like, oh my goodness, I'm just going to be doing this political economy thing again. I was like, I this doesn't give me the theory that I think I need, and um, you know. This is a funny story, actually, um, a little insider talk. But um, the one policy school that I was most interested in was uh, the Woodrow Wilson School. Mm -hmm. And while I was there talking to the head of admissions, you know, he said, you know what? I think there's someone you should talk to. And guess who he connected me to? Fred Weary. Oh, Fred Weary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so I so I so basically. Hernstein and Murray, um, Fred Weary, and I wish, and Templeton, who I thought that, that's who was the head of, of admissions for, um, for the Woodrow Wilson School at that point in time. Those are the people I have to thank for becoming a sociologist. And um, actually, frankly, I know that Middlebury wouldn't, you know, wouldn't allow Murray to come and talk, but I'd actually love to have a conversation with him right now. Um, and just, you know, just ask him, like, why did you write that book? Like, do you still think in that way? I mean, I know he says he doesn't, but, um, but yeah, uh, I'd love, I'd love, I would love to sit down and have a conversation well, with that man. If you, if he's anything like his Twitter feed, I don't think it would be that satisfying to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he sounds like a patronize. He sounds patronizing and, uh. I don't know. It's not, not my cup of tea, but I would like to say if you put Fred Weary in front of any program, you're going to sign up. That guy's salt of the earth. <laughs> um, so what's the moral of the story here? What, what, what is the moral that we draw? Is it that dissatisfaction pushes people to the discipline? Is that what we're to infer? Um, I don't know. I, uh, like for me, it wasn't, I mean, it, it was partly dissatisfaction, but it dissatisfaction with one thing and, and, and understanding that there was like this other place mm -hmm. that I could go to that I was like, Oh, mm -hmm. right. Here are the tools. Here's the language, right? Why did I not know what sociology was the entire time I was in undergrad? Truly. <laughs> 
You know what's interesting is I always uh, I, I, I always uh, grapple with the question why are why are sociologists liberal but not really it's not liberal isn't the word I'm looking for but why do they resist sort of society's established institutions why are so many anti-capitalism why are so many you know a, uh, not anti I don't know nationalism or anti you know what I mean they uh, and I guess maybe the kernel is is uh, the kernel is that you you have some type of recognition that the way that things are done is not the way that they need to be done or necessarily the best way. You have a sense of sort of social convention. You have a, a sense of how like truths are constructed by people and things like that. And you know, maybe that, maybe that's the, the draw. That's what brings people in. I don't know. Yeah. Hey, you guys out there, if you have your own sociology, uh, Genesis tale, you know, <laughs> I'm not on Twitter, but go ahead and tweet Gabe, Gabriel, I should say, he's going to shiv me if I, <laughs> if, I him, if I call him Gabe, go ahead and tweet Gabriel and Joe. Um, and I can call you Joe still, yeah, right? Joe? Absolutely. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, we, I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear those stories. I'll tell you what, better yet, send a less than one minute audio recording. Awesome. And now we turn to Danelle Butler. Danelle is the Pahara Aspen Educational Fellow and the Senior Associate Dean for Planning and Analysis of Student Outcomes at Franklin and Marshall College. And I didn't say he is a sociology degree. Donnell, who, uh, d degree holder. Donnell, who did you study under at Princeton? Marta Tienda, Tom Espenshade, and the amazing Doug Massey. Nice committee. But I had so many teachers other than them. I mean, Marv Breslin, the living legend, who's no longer oh, living, yeah. but was a legend when he was. Um, and Viviana Zelizer, who oversaw pretty much my development as an economic sociologist, which is what I thought I was going to be um, until I, you know, switched to my dissertation topic. Oh, there were so many great people I learned from. Alejandro Portes, um, you know, Scott Lynch was sort of my second reader, like, mm -hmm. you know, that like not really on my committee. But man, I would spend hours with Scott Lynch, you know, talking about data stuff. Oh, Scott's a brilliant guy, and Vivian is also salt of the earth, just like oh, Fran. Yes. Well, so uh, anyhow, we're really glad to have you on uh, because you know you you you've taken a different path, and I actually remember you always wanting to take a different path, even back in the day. You had your sights set on uh, admin and sort of the executive track, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your path from a sociology PhD to the executive track. Uh, like, what is it? How, how do you do it? Who's it good for? Well, uh, you know, uh, what does it take to make it on that track? When I talk to students who are thinking about getting a PhD, but they're not sure if they want to be a professor, I go, that's fine. Just don't tell them that. It's okay to take what you're going to learn in a PhD program and use it for other purposes. For me, my actual original goal was I wanted to be able to merge the sociological toolkit with the toolkit from what I would describe as the accounting, auditing, and business consulting world. Mm -hmm. I essentially want to be a consultant for nonprofits, for educational institutions, for health and behavioral welfare organizations. And so my plan was to take both my business background and my social background and basically become the McKinsey for nonprofit. What detoured me along the way was I kind of fell in love with research. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I like teaching, but I didn't love it enough. Um, mm -hmm. And what I really loved was the research. And I learned as a graduate student, I couldn't do both at the same time. So every semester that I taught as a teaching assistant, you know, I, I worked with Howard Taylor one semester, just Fernandez Kelly once, like, any semester that I was a teaching assistant, I got no research done, mm -hmm. none, because I was all into the teaching. I like consumed every one of the readings. I, you know, sitting with the professor trying to understand how they design their lecture. Like I was all in to be like, one day I'm going to be a great professor, but I got no research done. 
And everything everybody told me was, well, you have to do both, teaching mm-hmm. and research. And I was like, I can't choose. And not only did I not want to choose, in my heart of hearts, I like putting things into practice. Mm-hmm. And there was no way to do that. Like that wasn't part of the process. The process of getting tenure was, you know, good research, mm-hmm. good teaching. There was nothing about helping make schools better or helping develop programs or evaluating existing interventions. That, that, that wasn't part of the process. So let me ask you a follow up on that. You know, uh, we know some people, who, a lot of people who listen to this are graduate students. Uh, maybe some of them are contemplating this career path. Can you tell us who is this line of work good for? What do you need to succeed in this line of work? And what's the first step? If you have a PhD student who is interested in getting on the executive track, what would you recommend to them? Well, I'd say the first thing they need to think about is, is there a particular reason why they want to be in a sort of non-academic job, right? What's your rationale for wanting to be in a non-academic job? I would say that for some folks, it's probably not the wisest thing to do if you just don't think or you're having a hard time finding a job, right? Because the job market's tough, right? Mm -hmm. But if you try to sell yourself in the non-academic job market, just as, well, I have a PhD, hire me, that's not going to work. Right. You need to be able to make connection between skills that you're developing in your Ph.D. program with whatever that organization or industry needs. And so part of that is figuring out, well, what are you passionate about? What are your long term goals? What matters to you that's outside of academia? And there's clearly something you just have to identify what it is. Then once you've done that part, once you've basically got what is my hook, what is my what is the thing that that, that, that's going to drive me outside of academia, then you just start researching, you know, Mm. and you've got the research skills. So, yeah, so I have a question that's totally unrelated uh, to the last question, but I think it's it's actually allows me to ask you about where you are right now. And I think, I hope that this question will allow you to use all of the different hats you have, like as a sociologist, right? Um, and also as an administrator, right? Um, uh, and this has to do with, uh, with how colleges and universities across the country have been wrestling with free speech hmm. um, and thinking about, you know, the, you know, trying to balance free speech on the one hand and things like anti-harassment policy on the other, free speech on one hand and, you know, and students feeling safe on the other, um, uh, you know, whatever. I For whatever reason, I still keep getting emails from the University of Michigan where, um, where it did my postdoc and it looks like, like Richard Spencer is supposed to be uh, speaking there. And um, we know what happened, you know, down in Florida um, when he, where he last spoke, um, at least to my knowledge. And so uh, what are your insights about this, Danelle? How are we defining free speech? Because what I've seen far too often is this initial notion that Well, freedom of speech is in the Constitution. Okay, well, if we're going to use that argument, the Constitution is about the government, right? It's not about private institutions, right? Colleges and universities can do whatever they want to. Well, not whatever they want to, but college and universities have a lot more room to move. Well, the private ones anyway. (laughs) What about what about a public school, though, like University of California or CUNY? Well, even they have some room to move in a different way because it really says so, you know, and you may want to edit this, but I'm going to I'm going to pull up the Constitution right now. All right. First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, 
and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Congress shall make no law. Free speech is about, in the First Amendment, free speech is about Congress, what Congress can do and what Congress cannot do. It's not about what colleges and universities can and cannot do. So when we're really talking about free speech, what we're talking about oftentimes at colleges and universities is the ability to have a conversation about any topic at any time with the goal of understanding more. This is where I have a problem sometimes, though, with certain types of speakers that are brought to campus and certain types of comments that sometimes you will hear students say when they are attacking other students is that you're not trying to understand in some cases. You're trying to provocate. You're trying to start something. Right. And there's a difference between raising a topic, raising a discussion that's controversial or provocative for the purposes of trying to understand, for the purposes of trying to reach common ground. But if your goal is simply to attack, demean, provocate to anger, provocate to violence, if your goal is just to basically have a platform to say what you want to say for your own purposes and you really don't care if anything of value comes out of it other than it pumps your ego up and that of what you believe, I think that's just a waste of time. Hmm. I think colleges and universities have a stand that they need to take. And the stand they need to take is we're all about free speech. It's all about understanding. All the other forms of speech, we're not about. There's no value to it. Well, well let me try to, uh, give, first of all, for, if you don't know, Gabriel had to leave uh, quickly. But I want to channel Gabriel here, uh, something that he said a few episodes ago about uh, when we were talking about uh, somebody some tro- somebody trolling on Twitter. I forget who it was. But he's, he, his position was he doesn't want to be put in a position where he has to judge the merit or quality of someone's speech. He'd rather just have everybody be allowed to speak so that uh, uh, the idea is, is that if you protect all forms of speech, it will sort of give a very strong protection to high value speech. And the price that we have to tolerate is low value speech. What's your reaction to that? So as as an administrator, there's a simple solution to that. If Richard Spencer wants to come and talk, cool. Richard Spencer can come and talk, but he doesn't get to just come and talk in a lecture hall by himself for 50 minutes. He's got to be on a panel and he's got to be on a panel with some other voices that can be representing other points of view so that it's no, it's not about judgment here. It's about we're trying to get to dialogue. We're trying to get to an understanding here. That doesn't happen if it's just Richard Spencer getting the microphone for 40 to 50 minutes. Yeah. The other thing that I would say is, you know, like how much how how much did they pay in Florida to prepare for him to come because of safety concerns? Was it six hundred thousand dollars? Do you know how many how many how many students you could have given a free a lot of tuition, ride for yeah. a year? <laughs> That's a lot right? of tuition. And for and for what? Right? For what? I mean, I understand the whole point of saying, okay, I don't want to I don't want to be the one to judge, you know, this person's speech versus another. But let me tell you this. I I, I think I, I'm very comfortable judging, like feeling like I can judge doing a cost-benefit analysis and saying, is having one person come and speak here worth $600,000 for our institution? And I mean, I, I mean, would you give somebody a speaker fee um, of $600,000? Probably not. So I, I don't know. That's a, that sounds like a lot, 600 grand. Is that really how much it costs? It, it, well, that's how much they cost because of all the safety concerns. Right. There's, there's, there, there are I, every estimate. I've the lowest estimate I've seen is five hundred thousand. So six hundred thousand could be right. I, but I've seen the estimate as low as five hundred thousand. Either way, that's way too much money. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a very expensive. I don't think Obama gets that much money, does he? <laughs> oh, I'm sure he does. <laughs> I'm sure he does. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to Danelle Butler. Danelle is the Pahara Aspen Education Fellow and the Senior Associate Dean for Planning and Analysis of Student Outcomes at Franklin and Marshall College. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play. You can visit us on the web, theannexpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Sochanex. Or join us on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. On behalf of Leslie Hinkson and Gabriel Rossman, who had to run out, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.